Wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, and whoever staggers because of them is not wise. Proverbs 21. Welcome back to the Go to Hell podcast. Strong opinions weekly held about Christianity, the church, and beer. Now let's join our hosts, Tim Curley and Colton Pierce. Um, We're at an hour and a half. Well, we got our ways to go. Um, We're drinking... uh, a new beer here before we transition. Well, we're going. To, uh, we have a ways to go because you and I have it built into our mind that we have to go like an hour, hour and a half per episode. Where everyone's like, you know, you could just go like forty-five minutes to be fine. So, I don't know. This last episode, we're going to call Whammy. Anyway, I become kind of famous for my signature catchphrase, Whammy, as in Gene Tennis at the play. Eh, whammy. There you go. <laughs> we'll, we'll toss up a clip. Of... We'll do like a, we'll just, I'll clip it up to the first part, 45 minutes, because everyone will feel much better about 45 minutes after we did our three and a half hour, I left my liver in, in San Diego episode. Yeah, everybody's like, last one what the posted. hell was that? <laughs> yeah, you just need to call that one a deep cut episode. That's just really what it is. Uh, so. Well, I did say in the show notes, it's either going to be our most listened to or least list- listened to episode, but. It doesn't matter. We needed to decompress that weekend. <laughs> we did. So. We needed to talk about it. Which is great. Um... Yeah, we're uh, drinking uh, now from uh, from uh, Bruco. We're drinking the one pint. Uh, 7% ABV West Coast IPA called Unite and Strengthen. Um, this is the one that I end up drinking on game days. They, it's less than the away days. The away days is 7.1%. This is 7%, but yet this thing, I kid you not, it'll hit you like a truck. Um, it, doesn't have, it has an IBU of 50. Which is International Bitter Units, for anybody that doesn't know. Um, so... It's coming in at the standard, which is great. They they give you like a little bar here on their can, which is kind of fun um, to kind of show you where it's at, bitter-wise. Um, yeah, just it's funny. The IBU does only applies to people who really like IPAs because nobody who doesn't like IPAs is going to look at the IBU for, yeah, the, you wouldn't give a rat's for the hazy, and it's barely showing a bar. It says 20. It's like... The, and the average IPA person's like, no, I'm sorry, that's a bitter piece of shit beer. I'm not drinking it. This beer is really tasty. It is tasty. And back to what we're, what I, both of us were talking about with Jeremy and his whole endeavor. He has on the can, props to him. Um, and it goes to what I was saying. He has on the can culture, community, craft. He is committed to everything that they do there. Looks like there's a, an attention to detail. Someone's overlooking the facilities. They're not letting bathrooms pile up with nope. toilet paper, uh, uh, hand paper, and the it, like. The whole place is kept clean. Now, part of that is Jeremy will let people know you're not just a patron here. You're you're uh, you're a member. You're a member. So 
clean it up as you go. Yeah, and it's you, not don't rely on staff to clean things up. But there's an attention to detail. Everything's done in the way that I like businesses. You know that the the we would say that the peak is you know the the Apple computer the computing idea. Everything is done with quality, 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 culture, culture. And if we don't meet the, these high expectations, then what are we doing here? Then yeah. I'd rather not do it. And if you're if you're ever at eighteen fifty two Bruco, you odds are you will probably see Jeremy there. I I think I've been there once, and Jeremy has not been there. Um, every time I've been there, I've only met him. You know, you said we're friends with Jeremy. I met him three times, but I will say every time I've met Jeremy. He's either very good at pretending that he knows people, and I'm not meaning that as a as a insult. Insult because he meets there, like two thousand people a day. There is a that is a gift to make every person you meet like like I know I've met Jeremy twice, or I've I've met and but he's he's generally genu- genuinely treated me like I know exactly who you are. I remember the conversation we had, and I'm glad you came here. How are you doing? And yes. you can see that as being fake and i just say if you're if you're that kind of person stop reading so much into something there's a value to someone just being treated like he's not trying to be phony and he's not but that's he's the key thing to just make that... you feel like you're truly valued and 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 a member of a family and he could have and the funny part is he probably had somebody on his staff say hey i need I need something from the back or whatever. And he caught you on the way and he recognized you and he, he'll come over and he'll say, Hey, how are you doing? Um, and, and truly mean it and like ask about you and stuff. He was asking me the other day if my wife was pregnant. It was, it was about a month ago. He asked me if my wife was pregnant. He's like, she's not really showing, but like she kind of had the waddle and I just was curious. I was like, Oh, is she, is she expecting? And I was like, yep, we're going to have a little girl out here running on these soccer fields in a couple of years. So, um, well, the first time I met him, I, I went up to him and introduced myself. I knew about the background and we went to our church and I just interjected, Hey, if you're looking for soccer pictures, I've got a company that does that. And let me know if you want some stuff to throw up on the wall. So the next time I saw him, two, three minutes, I'm talking to him and I'm like, I don't, he's acting like he remembers me, but I can't imagine he remembers me. I've only met him once and it was at the World Cup event where there was like 500 people there. Yeah. But then all of a sudden he says, hey, I'm still interested. I'm still thinking about getting some pictures. So, uh, you know, I'm going to hit you up for photos. I'm like, okay, damn, that guy remembered exactly who I was. Yeah, all right. That's impressive. <laughs> He's phenomenal. You need to tell him about the photos you put up on your on your wall, so he'll be like, "Okay, yeah, I'm gonna get some pictures up on the wall." Yeah, I'm. Yeah, because my my wall looks awesome. I literally. He's got spaces in the in the big room where they serve beer. There's plenty of room up there to put like ten, twenty prints up there. Yeah, he wouldn't have to spend more than a thousand dollars with the prints and nice framing or even cheap framing, five hundred dollars to put throw just a whole bunch of pictures up there. Yeah. And I talked about it earlier. My room does look super sick. And if you know me, I'm really into trying to connect with a certain uh, group, a certain outlier group in high schools. So uh, just putting that up on my walls is just that much more inviting for that particular group to uh, for me to connect with them and, and get them to at least get C's in their classes so that way they can move on and do stuff with their lives so it's really awesome um 
But again, honestly, I believe that beer tastes really good from the tap. But I think that this Unite and Strengthen, it tastes better from the can. Really? I don't... I, I, I drink a lot of Unite and Strengthen. And I oh. had... I had one last night, and I had one today, and I was, and I'm having one right now, and I'm like, this might be better from the can. Just a side note: a couple episodes ago, if you're list, if you're Uh-oh. scoring at home, we tried. It wasn't Hetty Topper; it was the Doppelganger, because our round two was Doppelganger. Yeah, and we made comments about sediment. <laughs> now, one, I will stipulate: those cans were about. Three months old, so we were pushing the limit. But two, I remembered the cans are very explicit. You're supposed to drink from the can, and I think that's why. <laughs> because Andy and I then had the two remaining that I had in the refrigerator, and he's like, should I get glasses? And I said, nope, you do <laughs> not want to get a glass. And he and I polished off. There was no liquid in those cans, and we had no sediment chunks, so... When it when the can says drink from the can, you probably should follow the instructions. It's not something that's uh, tongue in cheek. So, <laughs> yeah, because we had what a, an eighth of an inch of sediment in our glasses when we poured it out. Oh my god! And it was it was very off putting. Right, and that's always the hard part about sediment in beers. It happens. It's nothing like. Oh, and some some beers rely on it. That they're 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 they need that they want that sediment in there to add flavor. And when right. you're, if you're and if you're drinking from the keg, over over draft, it's not getting in your can. But that sediment is sitting in there; it's still adding flavor. Blah 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 blah. Right. But if it comes out of the can, you're you just me like that is an old beer. Why am I drinking it? It's got floaty stuff in there. That's terrible. But then I was thinking later, like, yeah, it does say drink from the can. That's probably why. <laughs> Yeah. So a little little tip there for you beer drinkers out there. If the can is adamant, and that's literally the only can I've ever seen that says drink from the can. I think I've seen a couple that have said drink from the can. I've also seen ones Read that are the like, instructions. And especially with IPAs for anybody that's out there and you're thinking about drinking an IPA. For anybody who hasn't. Uh, they're meant to be consumed quickly. Yeah. They're not... No, they're not like stouts where you could keep them for. That's like a the problem years with them and stuff. Like, uh, it's it's you buy it, you drink it. Yeah, is pretty much it. Um, I mean, you could keep it for a couple of weeks and stuff. Oh, I, I thought you meant like drink it like quickly that when you open it up. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. well, yeah. Still, I yeah, say yeah that no, as well. I uh, yeah, IPAs need to be. They are fr- super fresh for about a month. You can push it depending on the IPA for maybe three months, but um. If you're getting like three, four months. And if it's a good enough IPA, it can stand that It can time, stand. But... Well, if it's a really good IPA, it can stand four or five months. And what you're drinking is still good. But it is not what the it's not brew the, master yeah, intended, it's not the intended when it came out. You'd be like, oh, that's okay. And if, yeah, if you'd had it like a month, uh, maybe a month out or two two weeks out, it's like, oh, this is delicious. So Right, right. Which is, which is ironic because the entire IPA phenomenon goes back to when Britain, uh, specifically the Indian uh, trading company, Indian trading company, which was essentially great Britain, if we're being honest, but the Indian trading company was 
shipping stuff all around the world to their uh, mercantile uh, businesses, both in what we now call the United States or North America and India itself and other places in Africa. What it would do was create a beer different than what was served on the island. They would serve an IPA, and the IPA had some had a uh, pro- something was in the IPA. I don't remember what it is that made the beer last longer on the boat when the sailors are out at sea and wanted to consume beer, or when they landed uh, and were in port. So the whole the the irony is the whole IPA phenomenon originally back in the day uh was to preserve the beer longer but that makes sense because back then they're probably making uh you know in the united in in the uk they're making probably exclusively ales and the ales are being made at a small scale and so they're going through the ales all the time right stuff's not sitting around if it's 1600 1700s you literally no one literally including the richest people in the united kingdom have the capacity to have beer sitting around as a supply you're just going through whatever you're brewing so everything is quick it's been brewed it's set in a keg for a minimum amount of time it's coming out it's not you know sitting in a dark room for months and months and months aging and so you know today we'd be like that's insane because you know right beer just sits around and i can t- uh I can create a lager and it can sit in kegs for months before someone finally buys it from your local distributor and or 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 even cans and bottles. And but back then it was like, no, we need something that will actually sit there and not sour or whatever uh, the process was. And so that's what the IPA was. But <laughs> yes, try to find as fresh as possible. If you're new to the IPA thing, you like them, look on the box, the can. Usually on the if it's a can, it's at the bottom of the can. Uh, it's literally stamped at the bottom of the can. If it's like in a cardboard box for like a 12-pack, it's probably somewhere on the box. If it's on the bottle, it could be anywhere. Somewhere on there will be a date. Try to find something within the last month or two. Yes. Okay. Uh, what do we want to do next? Um... Satan? <laughs> yeah, we could do the Satan uh topic you listening to anything else besides wham okay 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 okay. so the other the other music i've been listening to and i've actually been listening to more than wham sure so uh we're recording this on august 19th saturday this week robbie robertson guitar player for the band died at 79 no 80 years old damn so i am someone who listens to the band on a pretty uh fairly regular basis uh, i find them just to be uh if you're a music listener they're a hidden gem if it, when you do some digging the band well let me do some background and then Let's do some background on this. If you're not familiar with the band, you should be. And if you are somewhat familiar, you should be more familiar. So the band, they started out in the 60s. They were a backup band to someone I, someone called Hawkins. I think his band was called The Hawk. He was a fairly prominent, like, uh, 
famous musician in Canada. I think it was in Toronto. They were his backup act for a while. And I believe Bob Dylan discovered the band. Uh, they were made up of Robbie Robertson. The primary members were Robbie Robertson, who is the guitar player. And then uh, his name is Leon Leon Helm. Should know his name, Leon Helm, the guitar player, uh, the, the the drummer. Uh, the drummer is actually doing quite a bit of the vocals on a lot of their songs. Yes, he's playing drums and singing, which has always been just confounding me. I don't see how anyone keeps rhythm and sings. Uh, so uh, they split for a little while, but the band start the band transitions from there, and then they are the backup band for. Bob Dylan for quite a while. Nice. They go out on tour with them. Uh, they're doing, there's some, uh, if you go on a Spotify, I haven't checked Apple Music. I should check Apple Music, but I'm sure it's on Apple Music too. There are two, uh, Bob Dylan's released a bunch of bootleg albums where it's just basically, Bob apparently had enough money back in the day where he could just sit around and fuck around in the studio, in the studio yeah. and rack up studio time and pay whoever and just record a bunch of shit that never went on an album. I don't know or, how that works. Or had his own studio. Or I guess I had his own studio. But So he's released all of these bootleg uh, studio recordings. And there's, I think, two with the band playing. And it's him doing some, uh, them playing back up some of Bob's stuff. They're doing covers of stuff. Um, it's all really raw. I wouldn't say it's like amazing, but if you're into Bob Dylan, you just like music and you like some stuff where it's like, it's not great music, but you like the process of hearing people record and hone and hone and hone. It's really good. Uh, there's also stuff on, uh, just as a side note, Spotify has, who's it you were listening to a couple weeks ago, uh, the Irish guy? Uh, oh, I know. His name always escapes me. Uh, why? Why am I uh... into the mystic uh, caravan? Uh, I know what you're talking about. I, his name always is, I can never remember his name. I'm like I know exactly who it is. Van Morrison. There we go. I was like, what am I? They're on, uh, so Van Morrison's, uh, I think it's his, it's his initial album. It's got his, the songs he's most famous for, Into the Mystic, Caravan, uh, uh, for the romance, dun, dun, dun. Anyway, there are like 30 I, tracks. I was like, Brown Eyed Girls is most Brown Eyed Girls, another one. Uh, I'm a big fan of Tupelo Honey, personally. Oh. Honey. <laughs> there are like 30 additional tracks on Spotify where they're just doing like, there's like eight versions, failed versions of trying to do like a song. And it's great because you just hear them. And they'll include like him in full Irish like, yeah, there's too much there's too much guitar on that. He's like going too fast. Can you slow him down? Can you like, it's got all of him like feeding back to the engineer and the producer like, yeah, I don't like that. I need this. I need more of this, less of that. 
It's amazing. That's awesome. And none of them are as good as the version that actually ends up on the album, which is kind of comforting because some not everything you end up on the album is actually what's great for music music lovers. But if you like the so anyway, if you like the music process, find the bootleg tapes from Bob Dylan. Um, there's all kinds. There's some that include the band. There's some that don't. So anyway, they back up Bob Dylan for a while. They break out on their own. They become what we now know the band. Uh, Leon Helm comes back as the drummer. The band is made up of Robbie Robertson. Uh, uh, I don't remember the drum, the uh, bassist. They've got horns. They've got they they've got this exceptional eclectic mix. Because there's two or three guys in the band that are much older than them. And they are classically trained as musicians. Like, they went to music school and learned, like, classical music. And they're the guys playing, like, the oboe and <laughs> yeah. and piano and the organ and all that. They're, like, driving to be, like, we're going to just do, like, rock music that's being produced. We're, like, going to insert stuff. And then, they, and then the band's got this... Again, they get started as a Canadian band. I think Robbie himself was Canadian by birth. If you've ever heard Helm, he's clearly a Southerner. There's a strange, like, Confederate strain in their lyrics to a lot of stuff. It's not like pro-Confederate. It's just like Deep South. Uh, anyway, so Robbie died. Uh, I was very sad. I was listening to a lot of, um, a lot of the band. If you've never seen The Last Waltz or listened to The Last, I would, I would very much, if you're listening to this, try to go find to watch The Last Waltz. It is their last concert. The band, very precipitate, too soon, very much too soon, they decided we're breaking up. It was too much. They were, it was too much of a grind. I think they spent too much on the road backing up people like Hawk and Dylan. And by the time they made it, they were tired of being on the road and uh, particularly in the 60s and the 70s, if you were going to make your music money personally, the record label was making all the money from your album sales. Right. You were making zero. If you wanted to make money, you had to be out performing five nights a week around North America. And I think it became too much of a grind and they all either... Because they were too tired or they had made just enough money or like, we're done. They decide we're done. They become friends with Martin Scorsese. I don't know how that happened. but So they did one final hurrah. And I think the Fillmore was one of the big uh, arenas up in San Francisco when San Francisco Bay Area had all of the top venues for what we know as like 60s and 70s music. They do one last hurrah. And it is a hoot. It's a great concert to watch because you understand why the band was... If you were in music, meaning you were a musician, the band is who you turn to to learn how to be a musician. Right. So at their last hurrah, they've got Van Morrison. They have Bob Dylan. They have uh, Neil Diamond. They have all of the... Uh, Amy Lou Harris... Not Amy Lou Harris. Another, uh, another female... They have all of the top people at music wanting to show up to do this last concert with these guys. And I imagine if you're into country music, 
you have no idea how much if they're a really good country musician they have gone back they've listened to everything the band does and they are emulating it they're inserting it into their music Nora Jones has always been very open that that her like one of her top uh music influencers was the band in fact at one of the uh, i've been to two concerts and both times she's done a band cover and she did gorgeous versions of them but gorgeous covers don't happen unless the original song was a phenomenal song as well right so they are the they were the who's who of music if you were a musician and then you loved the band and so if you like music and you don't not really into the band dive into them and you will really appreciate the level of musicianship and as we've talked about in previous episodes like lyrics like they're talking about like they're telling stories in their songs and you're not really not really sure what they're telling because again they're kind of like a lot of like 19th century stories they're telling it seems like right but they are great stories that they're telling with great music really enriched music and so yeah robbie Robert, rock soon as i saw it came across my phone robbie dials like that's it i'm i think i stopped whatever podcast i was listening to immediately stopped it cranked up the the band in my office that we're sitting in here now and just listened for a couple days that's awesome i'm really mad a lot of people are dying i'm i'm i don't know if it's my stage in life or it's just a strange thing but it seems like a lot of people that it's probably my stage of life. It's just the way we're reaching that You're part. at that age now. A lot, like, you hit there are people and... that are 10 years older that are dying prematurely. He, uh, again, Robbie lived to a ripe age of 80. I mean, that's, in any era, that's a, you've lived a full life. Anything over 80, you're just, God's giving you borrowed time. Right. But I'm reaching now, yeah, I'm now reaching that age. It's like, yeah, he's 30 years older than me, but he's dying. And it's like, fuck. Pisses me off. But we're not immortal, so. Yeah, I uh, I have been listening to, like I said, I turned my I turned my uh, classroom into a skate shack. So, um, so I said I was listening to Weezer. I've also been listening to a lot of Yellow Card. If anybody's ever listened to Yellow Card, um, pop punk band. Uh, the funny part about Yellow Card is they're. Uh, uh, they do, um, they use a violin, um, in their punk band. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, it's, uh, and I have a really funny story about it was I went to a bar in Nashville, Tennessee. And, um, if you go to Nashville and you go on Broadway, again, there's no cover charge whenever you go in any of these bars, but there's always live music playing in every single one. And we went upstairs uh, to this one bar after we had a really interesting night at this blues uh, yes. cafe. If you haven't heard that story and you know me personally, come up to me and ask me about that story because it's hilarious. But anyways, me, and, me, Eric, and Alec, we were on a road trip for two weeks, and we, in the heart of our road trip, we hit Nashville, Tennessee, and we spent a couple of days there and we go into this bar um we go into chris rock's place uh not chris rocks um not chris rock chris uh oh no, uh, no kid rock kid rock there we go thank kid, you yeah kid like, rock on so if you've been to nashville if you haven't been to nashville before there's one street in the middle of downtown it's called broadway all the places you want to go to well not all the places 
You have to go to Broadway if you go to downtown Nashville, and on it are, what, 15, 20 honky-tonks? I think it's like 40 or 50 is what it seems like. There's so, But there's a spot on the east. It's either the east or north side. I, I, don't, I think it's the east side of Broadway. That the east side has the most famous people's honky-tonks. Yeah, so like Jason Aldean has Jason a spot. Jason Aldean, Kid a couple Rock other, yeah, spot. they got some, and so Kenny Chesney has a spot. Kid Rock's anchors it because his is four stories. Yeah, it's four stories, and each lo- so the first two levels are, and this is how a lot a couple of them are. So the first two stories are in his spot are one is that's the main band is right there. Um, then a story above that is a completely different level. It's kind of almost nightclubish, but there's a light, there's a band that plays up there. Yeah. And then the fourth story is the nightclub. So there's a DJ up yeah. in the fourth level. Very and, clever on his part. And what's sad is that a lot of people, well, I don't know if it's sad, but nobody really goes to the DJ rooms. Right. Um, and there's a couple of them in Nashville, but nobody really goes to the DJs. Everybody wants to be where the live music is playing because those live musicians can literally play anything and sing anything. Um, so if you want to hear a specific song, it's literally like a jukebox. Yeah, if you go to Nashville, you'll realize how much unused talent is out there. <laughs> oh, these my, poor it, folks are just slogging and they're doing it's perfectly a, good covers of songs that you know. And you're like, this person's amazing. And yet they are slogging it out playing for, I have, I, I mean, they're I playing for tips on stools. Yeah, like that's literally it. That. And, but also if you go to Nashville, if you've never been, they will be in your face about trying to get tips from you. Mm. They will like put a bucket like in your face and be like, Hey, you better like pay me because that's the only way that they're getting paid that night. Right. They only make money off of tips. Yeah. Nobody has paid them to be there. They are, like I said, there's no cover charge. There's none of that. There's no cover charge. The the uh, if there was a cover charge in Nashville, nobody would be. Tootsie's there. has not paid them a hundred bucks yep. to show up and nope. play. They're nope. not getting. Get, there's no guarantee, and so they are very openly walking around. They'll initially start like, "Are you enjoying the music?" Yes, I'm enjoying the music, and you kind of give them a look like I'm also still eating and enjoying my drink. So don't interrupt me. But they have to, like you said, they have to do it in order to get some money. Yeah, and so, so we go to friendly tip if you go to Nashville, bring some cash and tip. Yeah, even if you don't think they're amazing, just be pay it forward, be a nice person. You're not by you giving them 20 bucks, you're not encouraging them and try and per, uh, perpetuating like mediocre talent. The one, there's no mediocre talent on Broadway, no, there's not. So, like... even if they're not the best person you heard that night. You're not like in some capitalistic way just encouraging someone who's got no business playing music being out there. Just tip them some money. No, Be nice. Everyone that is out there is extremely talented. And like I said, they could play anything that you want. Yeah. Um, and we went to uh, we went to this we went to Kid Rock's place. And while we were up there, they decided to play some Fallout Boy. <laughs> Which was hilarious. So we're we're up in the third story. So we're we're at the nightclub esque, um, but there's a band, a live band up there, and they're playing Fallout Boy, and they were like, "Yeah, uh, there's a little pop punk for all of you." And my drunk ass, because I was drunk at that point, I had drank quite a few beers. I was like, <laughs> I said, they had a girl up on stage who played the fiddle, and I said. No shot in hell they don't know Ocean Avenue by Yellow Card. 
So I walked up there and uh, the bassist was accepting the tips because in order enough to buy a song, you have to pay them a tip. So I go up there with a $20 bill and I hand it to the bassist and I say, you guys know Ocean Avenue by Yellow Card? And he was like, he was like, we got you. <laughs> the, the fiddle player was a chick um, and she was apparently dating the drummer, I guess, that she took a break. Um, and so we, uh, we go through, we're listening to a couple of songs or whatever. And I was like, man, dude, that bassist like freaking screwed me. Cause I like, like probably like 45 minutes went by. Um, and then the violinist comes back up on stage and, and literally the drum, the drummer was like the MC for the band. So he would talk for them and do all right. their stuff. So the guy from the drums goes, some motherfucker in this bar. <laughs> Heard pop punk earlier and saw that we had a fiddle player on stage and said, I bet they know yellow card. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Well, and that's exactly the kind of thing you want to do. You want to see the, say the thing that's easy. You want to yeah. be like, uh, let me get back to you on that. I think I can do that. He goes, the drummer goes, I haven't played this song since junior high. And I was like, Yes! Like, this is what I wanted! Exactly. <laughs> and so they played that song, and it was awesome. It was phenomenal. I walked four but stories of stairs to get up here. You can play whatever I want you to play. Me, Eric, and Alec <laughs> were dying laughing. Like, oh my gosh. He literally called out everything that I was thinking. I was like, yeah, I'm the drunk motherfucker. Here I am. Uh, it was so great. Uh, and it, it just topped off a really phenomenal night. Uh, for me and Eric, not necessarily Alec, but <laughs> again, if you know me personally, come come up and ask that question if you don't know what I'm talking about. So that song is funny and yellow card because our friend JC that we've referenced to multiple times on this podcast that was yeah. a pastor at our previous church and then got run out because he was too cool for school or too much of a dick or whatever that the whatever they said, whatever the establishment thought. His first Sunday preaching at First Baptist Church in Tulare, he said, I don't know how many people out there listen to Yellow Card. And I blurted out literally the song you just said. And I said, and he goes, hey, boy. <laughs> like, right. And he and I were already friends because I, you know, I was on the board. And so we'd met and we'd already met. But he was like, yes. That is my friend right there. <laughs> That's amazing. And I wasn't really a huge... I, I think I, I bought their... I think it was one of the last CDs I ever bought was the yellow that yellow card CD with that. Because it, it was a good sound. Uh, you mentioned skate music, and I'm thinking more like ska. Like, no doubt at their peak. Not really poppy peak, but actual ska and sublime and... Yeah, sublime. The hard part uh, is like, I okay. When I say like skate music, again, it's skate no, no, music. No, no, you you were fine. No, no, no. But I'm saying like skate music that I could play in my classroom. If you know sublime, like I can't play sublime no, in my classroom. <laughs> I can play uh, what I got. I think is real clean. big fish. Real big fish. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, real, like yeah, a, you can play real big fish band. Uh, there's a couple of them. That well, I can even play, like but, Blink 182, you could play it, but it's subversively. Yeah. yeah, there's some that I can play. It's in not my explicit, classroom. but if you actually listen to the air, it's like, oh no, that's pretty filthy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can, there's <laughs> I got to be selective about what I can play in my classroom, but Yellow Card is one of those that I can play. I can play Weezer. 
Um, I've got some Rise Against, which is JC, who you just talked about. That's his favorite band. And so I've been listening to some Rise Against recently. Um, they're pretty anti-American. If uh, Well, anti-American establishment, like consumerism kind of stuff is really a big push for them. Um, so if, if that's not your forte, I completely understand, but they've got phenomenal songs out there. If you haven't listened to Savior, um, I've made it clear on this podcast. I'm a uh, child of, I'm a child of Ronald Reagan, uh, although I'm not anymore, but I've seen Rage Against Machine. The yard guys there. I have like seen... he disappeared. I have seen Rage Against Machine four times live, so... I still... One of my favorite th- stories about Rage Against the Machine is when BBC asked them not to cuss. Uh, yeah. They're like, you can't... <laughs> it's like, who booked us? <laughs> BBC was like, there's this really hot American band called Rage Against the Machine. And killing in the name yes. is one of their most popular songs, but like, they can't say "fuck you." I will yeah. do what you tell me like, on air. That's like, and I was like, "Did you not listen to the lyrics?" Yeah, and is, so it's so funny because it's just like, do you not know who you were dealing with? That's like booking a certain five foot four man from Minneapolis and saying, "Um, Mr. Prince, can you we not?" Can we not at all sing about sex yeah. in any of our songs? Is that possible? We like we really like the sound, but some of the sexual things that are coming out we're not really keen on. Can you can we not sing about that? It's like putting a microphone in front of Raymond Green <laughs> yeah. and saying, Hey, don't talk shit about the other team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna pull in uh we're gonna pull in uh NWA. Um, yeah, we really like the vibe. It's it's like very it's very raw, and we really enjoy it. But uh, but on police, but, but do we really, really like? Uh, do we have to year. talk about the police or, yeah. or, is, or the police, or as you say, the police? I I don't want to offend, yeah, but uh, I, oh can we talk God. a little bit about a little bit less about that, and maybe a little more like uh, I don't know, like uh, some other some other milieu that you're that you're finding interesting? Yeah, yeah. Don't. How about we not book? That was so funny. And literally, and if you've seen that video, they get a couple off before they cut. <laughs> so it's so funny. Oh my gosh. Rage Against the Machine is uh, a legend for doing that. And again, it's like, what, what were you thinking, BBC? What did you think was going to happen? The lyrics are, fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. Oh, it's so great. Um, but uh, yes, we're, we're introducing Rick James tonight. And so, but Mr. Rick, can we not do so much of the misogynistic yeah. li- lyrics that, that, uh, is there something a little more literary? Like, can we go somewhere more social commentary about, uh, the West and the Soviet Union? And they say, yeah, yeah, I totally got yeah, that. Whatever. For you. <laughs> just, give me on, just give me on the TV and I'll do whatever I'm going to do. Or, <laughs> yeah. or the radio. There's a bleep button for that. Yeah, why are you going to invite? Of course. Everything about Ray Chance. Look, there. So I talked earlier. Accept what the problem is and then we'll deal with the solution. I will admit, 
even back in the 2000s and the late 90s, as a conservative, what I would call myself a conservative back then, I accepted the social criticism that they were pointing out. Right. It's just I didn't agree necessarily, well, not necessarily, I didn't agree with the solution that they were pointing out. But I did enjoy the music. I And a lot of friends that I, that I was friends with who actually enjoyed the music, but they enjoyed it just from a music standpoint. They liked the literal music, the kind of mix of rap and, and heavy metal. We're talking about Rage still? We're still yeah, talking yeah. about Rage. Yeah, because Bulls, Bulls on Parade is a phenomenal song. It is, and but they didn't necessarily accept, they didn't even like the lyrics. And I'm like, no, I actually accept the problem they're laying out. I think we got a problem with hyper-capitalism and all these other things. And I think we do have a police problem. I don't think it's because police are the problem. I think we've got too many laws on the books and yada, yada. And we have, we America's a violent society, but... Let's accept that what they're. Let's just accept what they're singing about is a problem. Let's then and not fixate on what the solution is. Yeah. And what they were. I mean, they were avowed communists because they were all from Harvard or MIT or whatever. And like, okay, fine, you're a communist. You're, you know, whatever. That that ain't gonna work either. But fine. And that's why I went to four of their concerts. So, my buddy John saw them in the Netherlands and I think Japan as well. He went that far around the globe to see them. And uh, John's about a conservative as you can get. So, okay. Two hours and 11 minutes. We want to do Satan or we want to do uh, Russell Moore saying on how to fix the church or and why old people are leaving the church. Uh, let's do Satan. Well, isn't that special? <laughs> Is that advice coming from you, Ann, or is it coming from someone else? Like, oh, I don't know, say, Satan? <laughs> well, that's enough of you. Now let's give a big We've church spent a lot of, before yeah. now, we've spent a lot of time, I think, appropriately, this is how we should be spending our lives, trying to take everyday stories, interactions, and applying them as Christians and how we should lead ourselves to other people but now we're gonna kind of get more down deep in the weeds which uh we don't we do sometimes but we i don't think as christians always have to but we're gonna get kind of theological here and we're going to deal with the issue of satan or as his original name i believe in the hebrew but uh is satan because Christianity has really taken the idea of Satan, and we'll get into who or what Satan is from a proper modern biblical view, now that we know what we know about the Bible and interpreting scripture and language and all that kind of stuff we've taken satan and uh, and certain segments of christianity have taken satan and really run with it to a detrimental it's been detrimental to either general faith like entire denominations and personal faith is what i would say yeah and again understand before we get into this the church is in an interesting place. I, I I think part of the problem as Christians is I'm I'm 51 years old. If you're my age, 
there was a lot of stuff going on in seminary circles where people like actual academics were able somewhere in the two in the 20th century we will we were because we discovered the dead sea scrolls and a lot of archaeological things that then started informing how we read the bible it started changing the way academics were reading the bible yeah. now the problem is i'm going to say this is a problem because i include our friend that we referenced on here before dan mcclellan that leads them to be if you're overly look you either believe in jesus or you don't i'm not sure dan does i would love to have him on the podcast just for him to declare because i can't tell between his podcast and his tiktok talks if he does he is so academic i can't tell but put that aside nothing that we're finding out in as we find out more about language and the archaeology that we're finding that informs the Bible and all that kind of stuff is dissuading me from the belief in Jesus and who he was. For some people it is. A lot of people went into theology in the 20th and 21st century believing they were Christian and because what they were told was based on a First, arguably a first millennium, but at least, let's say, a 17th century, uh, 18th century view of Christianity that had not been updated. They had always been told everything's this way. And and if it's not, then Jesus isn't who he says he is. And then they're being told because of empirical evidence that's not what was written in the Bible. They're like, well, then the whole thing's a fraud. Am I right, Colton? I think that's happened to a lot of people. Yes. A lot of people. We should never take that view. Look, if you take that view, fine. If I, whatever. But if you believe in Jesus, that's fine. You, But you should be open. I think, And what we're trying to do on this podcast is open up like there are things in the Old Testament. Well, particularly in the Old Testament that we've been told to believe in. Because we have this, as we've mocked before, this like. Sunday school view of the Old Testament where we're supposed to take great pleasure in the the flood and David slaying God David which uh, neither which are from a, are a Jesus perspective thing okay so I lay all that all I lay all that out because we have a view whether you're an evangelical or a fundamentalist or whatever we have this kind of view of Satan as being a person and we now have enough understanding of the Old Testament in particular but even the New Testament now that we've digged into it and what the language is that that is not probably what you've been told either in Sunday school, college group, whatever, and maybe even on Sunday is not who Satan is. Am I right, Colton? Yes. And then, so we're going to dig into that. That's what we're going to do. And if you're like, I don't really care because I don't really think about Satan, then okay, fine. Skip this part of the podcast. But you might find it interesting. So, Satan. Let's talk about him. In the Old Testament, there Satan is referenced in the Old Testament, according to what I have in front of me, 27 times in what we would call the Old Testament, what other people would call the Hebrew Bible. Hebrew Bible, yeah. What other people would call, well, there's if you, if you go from there, then what, there's two or three uh, 
the Hebrew Bible is uh, separated into two or three things, right? Scholar, yeah, scholars. It's the Sept, Septuagint and the the Septuagint and, and the, the yeah. Uh, Pennant? No, not. Anyway. Well, and there's still what's tough about the Septuagint is you have the the Greek um, influence in the Septuagint, so that's why some people don't recognize it. That's why us as Christians do not recognize the Septuagint. It's because Martin Luther said that the Septuagint has original Greek texts. Okay, that's a good point. And again, look, we're going to stick with this because I want people to understand if they're if you're sticking with us here, we're get we are getting in the weeds. This is weed stuff. If you're listening to this podcast, but you should know this. Like you should know this. Stick with it. Any anybody that's listening to this podcast should know that there. Let's are... not be a a a little child Christian. Let's understand the faith. Right. That you're if you being taught and what is actually the truth. If if you read a Catholic Bible, you'll sit there and be like, why are there extra books in this Bible Correct. versus a regular one? The Correct. The reason is, is that they – so their Bible is not the Hebrew Bible. It's the Septuagint. Um, and that's what Christians used all the way up until the time of Martin Luther um, as their Old Testament, right. so to speak. Um, and through that, that Old Testament Septuagint is there are some – texts in there that are originally written in Greek and and actually what that does is it actually gives us less of a gap so there is a gap between the Old Testament to the New Testament um, of about 700 years it's like it's like 300 to 700 years I was like I'm saying this off the top of my head after I've had a couple of years so I'm like (laughs) I'm like don't. always a good, always the best time to have a deep dive. Yeah, I was like, don't quote me on this. On I was like, now that I'm like Bible. talking about it, I'm like, it, <laughs> but there is a there's there there are at least five hundred around five hundred give or take. There years. is a time discrepancy in between, and so, but we also need to understand history and really understand Hellenism and how that influenced the rest of the world. Um, we've talked about it on this podcast before, where there's a speculation whether or not Jesus spoke Greek. We know that he spoke Aramaic, but there's a high possibility that he spoke Greek. Um, And that's because of the Hellenistic influence. And when I say Hellenistic, if you guys don't know about Alexander the Great and his, what we call is Hellenism is this idea of he spread, he wanted one common language across his empire. Right. And so he pushed for Greek. And so even though everything was taken over by the Roman Empire, so... Oftentimes when people look at language, they associate Latin with the Roman Empire, Greek with the... Uh, Latin was a later thing that came along. Right, late, with the Macedonian later. Empire. And it was A.D., like 100 or 200 A.D., that Latin became Rome's Correct. language. And it became Rome's language because they didn't want to have... They were like... It, it was almost like a purist thing was yeah, why it, latin yes. it was oh no we can't speak greek that's somebody else's Correct. language um and, and it, so, <laughs> it was a sign that it was an understanding that the that the empire was waning but right it yeah, was it, really. it was almost this kind of elitist thing yeah that it was kinda, like all right we're gonna keep this over, thing so. going so we're gonna go all in greek this is an important point too because we don't have the septuagint in our uh, protestant bible but understand 
this is how it's related. If you've grown up in the church, but you never like done any deep dive, it's either been inferred or you just assumed, which correctly you assumed. If you've never gone to seminary, you probably think because the way you read it, it would be completely logical that Job is the oldest book in the Bible because it speaks in a way that does not speak about Israel and even the way it talks about God, blah, 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 blah. It seems like the oldest book. It is actually one of the youngest books written in the Old Testament. It was probably written maybe two, three hundred years before Jesus. And that is not to say that it is not an important book, but it is a book that is written what in Babel when there when Israel is still part of Babylon. It is take the reason why the language seems old is because it is taking a lot of language and stories from the Babylonian Empire and what their religion is. And so it's a different book, even though it's very important. I, th I think you and I both agree. Well, at some point we will, after doing some our own research do uh, a episode on Job because it's one of the most fascinating books in the Bible. But. Yeah, and you'll find that you'll find that a majority of the so biblical tradition, which is not just so we're clear, that's not helpful. No, but biblical tradition will say that a majority of the books that are written in the Old Testament was written prior to Babylon, and so like Moses was the author of the yeah not and that's not really true. What's the first five books of the Bible called again? Um, the Pentateuch, not the Pentateuch. No, it's uh, the. Anyway, yeah, correct. Does whatever that, whatever the term is, we're, we're they drinking, were not we're drinking beers. They're they not, were not actually written when by Moses. you were told they're being told. They yeah, were. Yeah, everybody will written. tell you that it's it's Moses. And again, it doesn't mean that it's not Moses's story. There's speculation out there whether or not Moses existed, um, into which I've heard arguments for it, but yet. Still, at the end of the day, you have to like there is there is evidence that proves that that not necessarily that Moses existed, but there had to be some type of leader. Correct. Uh, for them, so it was like you might as well just tag a name on him and call him Moses. Like, there's no way to prove like these bones are Moses's or right. something like that. They, so you can sit there. And again, when it comes to religion and it comes to faith and that kind of stuff, people are trying to get as many facts as possible. So people are trying to go out there and, and, and get this kind of information. And there's stuff out there. If you go out there and you look about Moses' story, you're going to find that there's there may be some things that you may not agree with or whatever. Um, and that's okay. You're going to have to... You're gonna to have to wrestle with some of those things, right? Like the the water splitting and all that kind of stuff, um, and what what sea they actually crossed and all that kind of yeah. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about today is again we need to recognize that in the Old Testament we don't as Modern day Christians, our Bibles that we receive, unless you're getting a Catholic type Bible, they do not have those Greek texts included. And we've talked about texts that they've excluded before. And yes, it is a selection process and all that kind of stuff. So that's fair to say. Any of you can say that anytime. But where were we going with that, with the Septuagint? Okay, so uh, 
if you take the Hebrew Bible, as we, uh, if you take the Hebrew Bible, as, so that means the Protestant Bible, what we would call the Protestant Bible, if you're listening to this, the Protestant Bible. The um, Bible. Well, the Hebrew Bible is the Old Testament only. Correct. But if, like, so if you if you're like okay I'm not really sure but if, if you're a pro, if you're not a Catholic what you what you've probably read your entire life that's the Hebrew Bible yes the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible Satan is is referenced and I'm not saying like he is named literally Satan I'm saying he is referenced in directly or indirectly 22 times in the Hebrew Bible. What is and so Satan is a Hebrew word and it literally means accuser, adversary, or opponent, and or opponent. Right. And that's important. It's extremely important. Because in those twenty two references, if you've grown up in the church, you have an idea of Satan as being this angel that's fallen from God. And, you know, he was one of the archangels and he's fallen from God and now he's he's fallen from heaven because he got too vain. And so he's this thing. And what I what Colton and I are going to tell you is I'm not saying he's not that thing. But when the Hebrew Bible refers to Satan, it is not actually referring to what you think it is. It is referring to an accuser an adversary and an opponent and in some time in some scripture the scripture is vague and seems to be alluding to a spiritual being which might be a being of the <laughs> might be a demigod which has a whole other conversation that now modern uh theology is the uh what's it the the kingdom not the kingdom anyway but it is also referencing literal people. It is sometimes Satan is referring to a person. It is a king or a say a chief of a tribe who is opposed to Israel and that person is being uh, referred to as Satan. Yeah, so with the accuser thing, I I in where I really want to start this conversation and I don't know where Tim's going with this cuz Tim's got a a laundry list of things that he needs to go through. Something that's really important to think about is, and I'm glad that you brought up Job earlier because I think that Job is a really good opportunity to sit there and think about this because everybody talks about Satan coming up there um, and having this discussion with God about how he wants, he's like, okay, Job is this only person and so um, that follows you and like, let me go and I can destroy his livelihood and he will run away from you. Um, and so aside from there and Stephen's execution and revelation, yes, we have almost, and, and this is, and hopefully if you're listening to this you're not offended by what i'm about to say you almost have this kind of mount olympus for those three circumstances kind of view of god and where god is he's in, he's he's in, he's zeus in, in his high chair right you know and there's yeah, the term i was thinking i couldn't remember was the, 
He is in charge of a divine council. Yeah, he's like the pantheon. Correct. He's like there, you know, like there's everybody. So comes. There, there's a there's now a modern strain of uh, seminary interpretation to look at uh, Babel, where God basically is like, I'm done with all the other nations. I'm casting them out. Yeah. And all of those nations are going to get a member of my divine council as their demigod. And I'm going to become the one God of Israel. And I'm going to ride this out. And then Jesus comes along and becomes the thing that casts out the demigods. And everything comes back again under God and one God rule. Right. Which I'm sure people right now are like, what the hell are you talking about? You've had too many beer. No, that is actual thing. We should get into divine counsel because it's mentioned quite a bit. There are allusions to it in Genesis, in Numbers, in Job. It is all throughout the Old Testament, this idea. And my, my view of that is, is that's because we're, again, if you, read the, if you read the Bible from a divine perspective, like God's telling people to write stuff down, that's problematic. Yeah. Because then then you have to believe cuz the language is very clear, folks. If you break down the Hebrew word, it means something like divine counsel. Whatever you think that word is in English that you've been told is not actually accurate. Right. It means something like yes, there is a god, but much like we view the Romans Roman Roman gods and the Greek gods and the Babylonian gods and say, "Oh, that's kooky talk that there's more than one god." The Hebrew Bible actually alludes to that as well. Yeah. My view of that is that is humanity trying to understand who God is and what nature is and how nature and God work together. And it's so I Colton, I think, agrees. I don't view the New Testament as a piece of paper where God was writing, telling someone to write down how the world works. It is people trying to uh, uh, figure that out. And so it stands to reason that if you live in the Mesopotamian Near East area and everyone and arguably pretty much all primitive people around the world view the world as it is really, it is arguably a very modern view to look at the world as a monotheistic way. Yeah. And in fact, modern, modern seminary, modern theological view says even the Jews, you could, there are, there are actually there are, we should do this, there are passages in the New Testament where Paul seems to be operating under a uh, multi... Polytheistic. Po a polytheistic worldview where he is saying, no, 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 God is the primary God. Now he's, uh, so anyway, we are under a delusion that the monotheism was a thing and the Jews of the Old Testament believed in monotheism. They did not. They just believed their God was better than every other God, just like the Romans did, just like the Babylonians did, the Mesopotamians did, etc., etc., etc. So again, we're not trying to dismiss Christianity or even Judaism. It's just let's have a healthy perspective of what the world was. Well, and still, actually, this is... <laughs> I, I've talked about this before. Well, I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast, but I think I've talked to you about it. Um, but I don't think I've explained it in this way before, but this is why I think that, and I didn't like this book this year. This is one of the, I didn't like it for a variety of reasons, but 
Um, I read American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did not watch the TV show because I found it very decadent. And I was like, ah, it's too dark for me. Which is fair. The book was dark. Um, and I struggled with a lot of the book. But uh, I told Tim, I'm trying to read my way through NPR put out like 10 years ago. They put out a, uh, a top 100 list. Yeah, of, so you're doing your due diligence. You're trying to read through everything. I'm trying to read like through it. their top 100s uh, fantasy sci-fi books um, that are on their list. And that list was not created by them that was created by fans so everybody voted and all that kind of stuff um shocker lord of the rings was number one (laughs) um but so we get to um to american gods and i'm reading and i was reading through it if that list had been done in the 80s it would have been catcher in the ride but that's not sci-fi fantasy though like uh, true enough. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. It's a phenomenal book. Like I don't, but um, Necromancer. When it came to American Gods, Necromancer's on the list. Um, is there's this idea again of the god become the, the gods gain energy in that book based off of if you recognize them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have to recognize them in order enough for them to to have power. And, and so what's actually happening is, and it's a claim that's made in the book over and over again, is that America is not a place for gods um, or is not a place for the old gods um, because Americans don't believe in tradition they don't, be- and we have our traditions in America, but they're not like what they got in Europe or whatever. No, they're yeah, they're they're um, they're nascent compared to human history. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, and so there's this whole claim throughout the entirety of it, and the thing is, uh, Odin and Loki are trying to hatch a scheme to try to make themselves immortal for the rest of the time. So they're, uh, um, so Loki loves chaos, and Odin loves war. And so both of them are hatching the scheme for anybody who's never read it. That's their whole, their whole idea is they're trying to create an opportunity to where both of them can continue to live because they continue to fade out as nobody, as there's less, less chaos and there's less war, um, within the country itself. Um, and so this is a huge element throughout the book, but at the same time, there's this idea that and this is true and what you were talking about earlier where god says you shall have no other gods before me and i'm not recognizing that there's other gods out there in the world but i'm still saying that we create gods for ourselves correct to where there are and again those are those idols or whatever you want to call it we are making things and this is the fun funny part about the book is that the book talks about there's a technology god there's a internet god there's a um there's a couple of different gods that are the new gods in the world and they are disgusting and grotesque and they're bad guys in the whole scheme of things and you don't want to be associated with them but those are the gods that we are creating in the united states um whether we recognize it or not we're sitting there and we are 
giving our time, our dedication to those things. And so, I again, Neil Gaiman was... I said that I didn't like the book because there was a lot of things that I struggled with with the book. Um, a lot of things that just made me uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and that's just my own reading preference. But when I finished the book, I was 100%. I was like, I can see why that's considered a top book and why somebody would want to make a TV series about it is because I was like, I understand that. I think it was good. And again, trying to be critical of it, I think that it's it's a really good book. I think Neil Gaiman writes really well. But just for me, it was really off-putting and grotesque. And so it was just like, meh. But, but I can see why it has a lot of acclaim to it. But again... And that's why I'm saying right now, before we get into this discussion, is there is this idea that, again, gods are and gods, little g, are created by us. Zeus is someone that we created. Correct. Yeah. We and we give them power in our minds. And that's going to be crucial to the conversation today. Is that if we continue to give power to things in our minds and we've had this discussion before on this podcast is when you've talked about We've talked about how us in the United States, we don't really believe in demon possession or we don't believe in this, but other countries apparently experience yeah, we, it fairly regularly. We are so we are so enlightenment driven that we ignore the spiritual to our detriment. And well, we have two extremes. Most of us go around and we particular let's just say Christians. Well, no. The vast majority of we li- the America is in a state of schizophrenia, and it's because we actually don't take the spiritual side seriously. Right. To where, whether you're Christian or not Christian, because we don't actually, it's like, it's let's just say for a lot of people listening to this, you don't accept, gu- you, because you don't own a gun, you don't help, you don't have a healthy appreciation for it. You don't, you truly don't, even though you say you don't like it, you don't understand the you don't truly understand the dangerousness of it you also don't understand what it can do and because because we are so intellectual in the united states we have a christian culture that is either like and you and i have both agreed on this in the recent podcast spiritual side of our is our shortcoming we are not good on prayer we're not good at recognizing the holy spirit that is we are dare i say sinful in that part It, it is a blind side to us that said, there's a whole side, the other spectrum of Christianity, that completely only feeds in the United States, and I would also say around the world, where they're very spiritual, only feeds on the spiritual side to their detriment and leads them to be stilted, childish Christians because everything is viewed through the Spirit and the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and blah, 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 blah. Everything is basically no different than the secular kids who go out to a 
uh, rave on Friday nights and Saturday nights and everything is about a drug-induced high. And the spiritual side of Christianity is if it's, I'm not getting this spiritual, not drug, but spiritual induced high, then my Christianity is not real. But then we have in the secular side, just what I was talking about. We have the side that I don't really believe in the spiritual world, but because I don't believe in the spiritual world, I'm going to take drugs in order to induce a spiritual high. Because I refuse to accept there's a spiritual world. Or the stuff that I don't like, we flirt with the demonic stuff in movies and TV shows that freaks the fuck out of me. And we don't take seriously, even though I don't necessarily think Satan or Satan is an individual person we should be worried about. There is a side, a dark side, that we don't take seriously we flirt with in, our, in the movies that come out, on the TV shows, and we don't take it seriously to our detriment. So that's my both critic, Christian and secular criticism of... Right. That's the problem we have. Like, I, I've never watched The Exorcist. I, uh, I will I will never watch it. And I won't... I've watched... I, I, well, I won't we'll get into that story, but... I won't watch that kind of stuff because it freaks me out. Not because it freaks me out because I do believe there is a truth to it. And I don't think it should be popularized. Literally, if you know, if you're watching a movie, that's pop art. Pop is short for popularized. I don't think that kind of thing should be popularized. Therefore, de dehumanizing, desensitizing oneself to that realm of spirituality. I and I think where you and I agree with this idea of divine counsel is people that God possibly allows. <laughs> oh, we're now on our another beer. Colton's we're now we've hit the non-alcoholic. All right. Let me wrap this up and then we'll hit the, the hit the beer. Anyway, we'll wrap it up. Satan is not one person. He seems to be a mem he is an interchangeable figure within the Old Testament and the New Testament. I will I'll wrap it up by saying Paul himself seems to allude in some of his writings of a divine council and multi gods. And if you're hearing this and you don't like it, I'm sure I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. All right, now the third beer of the week. Or Colton, what's our beer of the week? I don't know. Um, you don't okay. like it? I don't like the nose on it. Um, okay. He says our third Well, luckily beer. you're drinking from a shallow, a, a narrow glass instead of a wide glass. So you're getting less nose. Okay. Um, I don't understand. Oh, finish. Before I push back, just finish. So Tim said we're on our third beer of the week but this is actually tim's fourth beer ah! of this week my fourth beer um i'm gonna be cooked all day okay this has no alcohol <laughs> well it's a quote-unquote non-alcoholic beer okay so it's non-alcoholic it has a 0.5 percent alcohol by volume and it's better i'm i bet you that's better than that that hop water trash that kellen drinks from lagunitas i have no idea i 
I haven't tasted it yet. <laughs> I'm just telling you what the nose is. Oh, you just smelled it. Yeah, that was it. Oh, okay. Uh, this is from Athletic Brewing Company. Their whole Wild. stick is non is non-alcoholic. <sighs> Sorry. How do you have a brew company and you're all non-alcoholic? Okay. Because their former, I, the guy who started this, I think, is a former marathon runner, and so he wanted something. He likes IPAs, but he so he wanted the. He didn't want all the calories from a full, full-bodied beer. Fucking nerd. Okay. <laughs> all right. So here we go. The Run Wild IPA. This is the perfect beer for your dad. My dad doesn't give two shit. And most of those marathon runners don't give two flying fucks. They want to feel something is really what it is. They're like, golly. Well, I'd rather drink that than what I'm giving at the marathon, which is what uh, Michelob Ultra. Anyway, continue. Most You didn't like it. <laughs> now he's tasted it. You don't like it? That tastes how that smells. Do you like that? That tastes like fermented hops. It's fine. Not great. I can't believe you sat there and said if you that this okay uh, that's on just... flavor alone. I'll go give that to freaking Alec and Pet, and I won't tell them that it has zero point five percent alcohol in it, and they will literally be like, "This is not this good." This is it, it's all fair. This was not. I didn't purchase this for you. Let's just be clear. Colton is six foot two and skinny in and rail skinny. I am much shorter and fatter, so for the fat fuck who can't drink beer all the time, I bought this as something that I could maybe drink and not drink all the calories. So, dude, I can't finish that. That that you is, don't have to. I think it's fine on the on the front end. It's not. It's not good on the back end. That smells like the hops that are sitting outside of Kawia that I can't stand the smell of. I don't pick that up at all, but I'm not discounting what you what you're picking up on. I might be very being very be very generous, but hey, if you like it, that's good. I'm happy for you. No for me. And I literally I had no expectations uh for that beer. I, I don't like that. I don't believe that. But no, I didn't. I didn't give two shits about it being non-alcoholic. I was like, I'm gonna, I gotta drive after this. I was like, oh, cool. Like, well, there's plenty of cores still... and cores light in the fridge if you want to drink that instead. That's probably what I'm gonna have to have. <laughs> okay. And again, I don't. I don't have any issue with the fact that that's non-alcoholic. It's it's flavor profile alone for myself. Like, ooh, no. Good boy. No, I didn't ask for it. Shake. Shake. Very good boy. Shake. Nope. Not in my face. Yeah, okay. So where are we going from here? So, Satan. Let's lay some more groundwork so people don't don't think we're just, like, pulling stuff out. (coughs) Just making stuff up. Well, I'll I won't do the full Dan McClellan and like lay out every verse that's proving my point. But okay, again, there's 27 references in the Hebrew Bible. Um, you mentioned Job. 
Yes. I don't know that he's specifically listed as Satan, but no, people he's... assume he is. And so this is one of those is one of those I don't think it's the only one in the old what we would call the Old Testament whereas Satan is used as God's accuser. So again, he's not necessarily a fallen angel who's been cast out by God. He's the guy in shall we, shall we say the celestial uh, palace who was saying this guy you love this guy job you say he's perfect but i as your royal accuser god say he is not perfect and god says oh really you want to you want to wager on that right uh in but in other instances Uh, in Isaiah 14, he is listed, but I think he's, I think he's, in Isaiah, I think he's mentioned as Lucifer, which is not a Hebrew word. I think it's a Greek word. No, it's a Roman, Roman word for Venus. Uh, but in Isaiah 14, Satan is referenced, but he's to be understood as the king of pain. Babylon. Oh. What, what were you going to say? Say king of pain. Oh, king of pain. Uh, Babylon, uh, what else? Uh, Numbers 22, I think, is the earliest reference to Satan. Again, we as modern Christians uh, look at Satan as being the snake in the Garden of Eden, but that is not really a classical view. Well, we look at him as Satan, and it's Satan taking on the form of a snake. But really what the view should be is the snake is just a representation, of, again, of just an accuser, a an accuser, an, av- an adversary, an opponent, opponent, someone pointing out, well, you say God says we should live this way, but I say I'm telling you, Adam and Eve, we should live this way, and we take that as modern Christians as Satan takes the form of the snake, and I and I, I would argue no. That's that's you're 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 now inserting something into the text that's not should not be there. Satan's not a person in the text. This this the snake is certainly representative. We're not saying that the snake is liter- literally coming up uh, across Adam and Eve and saying you shouldn't do what God says. The point is, God uh, Satan. W- if we take the snake, is more of a concept. Uh, let's see what another one we mentioned Job uh, and then we get into the whole thing of Genesis 6 Genesis 6 which I would love to have a whole episode on because it is a complete waste of time as a Christian but it's fucking fabulous it's, it's very fascinating the whole entrance of the Nephilim Oh yeah. The and again this idea that the that these people who are part of the divine God's divine council decide to uh rebel from God. What are these divine council? Are they demigods? Are they gods? Are they fallen angels? We don't we're not really sure, but they come down to earth. They lead to the they lead to this rebellion. Satan's a part of it. So again, We've been fed this thing as Christians, and I understand why. It's easy to understand simple narratives that uh, Satan rebelled, angels rebelled, but if you look back at the text, that is not how the text really lays out 
who these people are, what they are. And it's not to necessarily mean, uh, that doesn't mean that we uh, have to throw out everything we believe. Just understand, that's not really for 2,000 years or 1,600 years or 1,800 years how the church has understood what these texts means. Okay, so who is Satan? Well, that depends, I guess, on who you are as a Christian. So we've just laid out the fact that Colton and I don't believe Satan is an individual person. You might be listening to this and you think, no, Satan is an archangel who rebelled against God and has now been cast out and he's engaged in spiritual warfare against God. That's fine. I am not, even though I've la we've laid out kind of what the classicist view of who Satan is, if your view is Satan is an archangel who rebelled and is now in spiritual warfare against God, I'm not going to say that's kooky talk because, I mean, we're all kind of speculating here, I think is the point. The problem Colton and I would have is The church has adopted that Satan in particular has become a scapegoat for Christianity, correct? Yeah. And that this is we're now getting to the heart of the matter. We've bumbled around. We've kind of get we've we've intentionally tried to give everyone some uh, expose people to some like seminary views, like if you, if you will, like deep theological seminary views of how uh, academia looks really looks at, at Satan now, but. If we're getting to the heart of matter and what our, our faith is, uh, depending on what your background in the church is, what your what denomination you're in, let's say if, as we mentioned before, if you're more towards the Pentecostal side, you view Satan as a foil. Right. As an enemy. As someone who is daily engaged in warfare. And I would say to you, Again, when I say this, I don't mean if you believe this and you hear everything I say and you still think I'm wrong, that you are not a Christian. That's not my point. You are incorrect. Satan is not the doppelganger, doppelganger to God, which is what he is viewed by by a lot of people in the church. Yeah. And you hear that in their daily language. Oh, I feel like Satan's at war with me. Look. There, let's agree. We even though we've spent the last 20, 30 minutes talking about there's Satan, there's an idea of Satan. Maybe Satan's a person. There's this idea of the divine council. There might be there. Even though this blows your mind, there actually might be counter to what Christians believe a demigod versus uh, there might be demigods or it's just a view of demigods trying to understand how the world works. Let's just say there are literally demigods. And Satan's one of them who's rebelled against God. He is not God. He does not have the cake. God is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. That does not make as the some segments of the church made him out to be and the opposite of that. Yeah. He is not, uh, what do they call it? Uh, he is not bizarro God, as they would say in the com in uh, 
in the Marvel comic world or yeah. Seinfeld. He is yeah. not. He is not Bizarro God. He is not around the world at simultaneously uh, 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 trying to convince you to marry the wrong person or go to the wrong college or make the wrong decision at work while he's also inducing uh, Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine and uh, and then induce this really rich person who owns a company to screw over a bunch of poor people. That is not Satan. If you take the most... Christian monotheistic view of Satan. He is not even Satan is not capable of that. No. Now, that is not to say that it is perfectly acceptable to say that there are demons who are working for Satan on his behalf. And I think would you agree with that, Colton? I, I would. think that's I think that's where you and I both are uncomfortable talking about it, but we both admit that that is, there is a, there is a spiritual warfare. Yes. But too many Christians want to put, pin it on Satan, like Satan. And so I'll take it a step further. Satan is not even, Satan does not even have the power to direct all of the demons underneath him to engage in what you think because you might say, okay, well, Satan's not doing, but he's telling all the demons to do it. No, even he does not have the power to do that. Right. Yeah, I think, um, I think what's always hard is that we focus on Satan for so much and we give him more power than what he actually has. Um, just Satan is this, this entity where a lot of time... I, the hard part is we recognize, and it almost seems, and I'm trying to say this delicately, we try to externalize our inner thoughts and our own inner feelings. Exactly. We, we scapegoat. Yeah, exactly. And we use Satan as that scapegoat. We say, "Well, that's oh. the worst form of." Let's say I'm gonna. I'll, I'll pick on Pentecostals, but I, if if right. you find this offensive and you're Pentecostal, I, I don't. But there's a strain it. of the Pentecostalism of I feel like I'm being. Well, I'll just take Pentecost. There's a, there's a healthy strain of Christianity that runs around saying like I feel like I'm being tempted by the devil. I'm being tempted by the devil. Being tempted by the devil. It's like. No, that's just you being your fallen self. The devil's got nothing to do with it. You're trying to blame someone else rather than understand, no, that is your inner fallen natural self depravity. Right, and for some of you, you might be sitting there and thinking like, well, I can't do anything about it. Like the devil is like coming over me or whatever. And it's like, nope, that's not the devil. That's you wanting that. You want that. Like, and I think that's how I would view a lot of these old texts that we're talking about where Satan is referenced. It's like, no, you're just, it's it's an old writer from 600 BC trying to come up with a reason why someone would go yeah. out and behave their way. And it's like, oh, it's got to be one of these these Satans who's challenging right, God. It's tempters. like, no, it's just human depravity. No, it's it's your nature and god has asked you not to yes. fall to that god and that's and that's what christianity is asking from you is saying hey this is 
the natural occurrence of how humans are without my guidance. And I am asking you to be better than that. Correct. And so you're sitting there and you're like, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. And it's like, yeah, that's natural for your body to want. And that's why when they talk about Christianity is difficult, that's what they're talking about. Is you are going against human nature. On a regular basis, you are sitting there and saying that I don't want to be a part of what this is. Because again, God is God recognizes, hey, this is not good for you. This is not good for you. This is not good for you. And so that's why he lays that out for you. But yet, again and again, we fall into that temptation. And it's not from Satan. It's from ourselves that we're fighting against. Um, because again, at, if you look at the Adam and Eve story, the snake still gets punished, but so does the man and the woman, because right. again, it is their free will that they choose. You have free will. So you can sit there and you are looking at option A and option B. You can say, I can do this or I cannot do this. You're, that's a very binary decision. We have binary decisions in our lives, and especially when it comes to these temptations that we're talking about. You can either engage in this activity or you can choose not to. And you are inclined to, if you are sitting there and you're like, well, I choose to engage in it, and you're like, well, the devil got me, and it's like, nope, you got you. That was your decision to make. You could have chosen God's way, which he wants for you, or you could choose this other way, which you wanted for yourself. And didn't care about any other, anything else. Literally, anything else. And so that's where the problem is. And and what we're getting at in this conversation, and I don't know how long today's conversation is going to go with this. Cause, well, there's another side to this that's even darker, but and let's all get to that when you, you well, wrap up. Because what I'm saying is, is that people use this language all the time pastors use this language all the time yeah it's it's uses the enemy the devil the The devil the devil which is the greek term it's not a it's that the 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 devil which is referenced in the new testament that's a greek term but it's the same it's the same concept it's the accuser it's the basically it's a scapegoat i view it as a scapegoat yeah i view it as a scapegoat too to where you don't have to blame yourself you can blame somebody else and that's that's not what's happening. You need to sit there and reflect on yourself and sit there and say, "Nope, it was me." And we're not talking about we're not talking about you being demon possessed. We're not talking about this, but don't sit there and say I was demon possessed. Like you wouldn't sit there and say that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't sit there and say a demon came over me and possessed me to do this like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type shit where I just like go and I murder someone, you know? Um, it's not that for you, right? Like that's not what's happening. So I don't know. That's where I get off. Well, the darker side of it is in, is when we ascribe the demonic to people we don't like. So if, if, uh, for historical context, think of the church and the Jews or think of, the Catholics versus the Protestants uh, during the uh, the Inquisition, or think of Protestants who didn't know what to do. Nobody who, expects the Spanish Inquisition. No one, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. 
think of witches because no one can explain why this plague is running and so it's got to be a witch and so we're going to just describe that they've there's some women who we don't like who well, i don't understand why they're not married because they're 20 something and they should be married so we're just going to assume they're witches and the reason why we're ha we have a plague running through our colony in the united states is they're witches and they're killing everybody even though it's no it's just a fucking plague but we're going to ascribe Satan to it and the fact that they're Satan worshippers and come up with a, a way where they can't win or lose when we put them on trial and we put them on trial. Yeah, they if they weigh as much as a duck. Yeah, then, uh... that is the that is the really dark side to the, the Satan. There is a Satan out there who is at war with me and I can't figure out why the world is working the way it is. Uh, most of the time it's because... You're not accepting your own choices and you're scapegoating. And a lot of times it's because I just can't figure out how the world is, but I really have to have some kind of answer to explain it. So therefore, I'm going to explain that Satan is at war with us and there's some human element who's involved, who's part of the cabal, and we're going to persecute them. Right. Yeah, I think that that's a true element of what goes on is we... We do ascribe that to certain people. I don't think it says much anymore in our culture because, like, mm. what we've well, what, what I was getting at is again, I think we do it, but we do it in different ways. So it's not like we're sitting there and saying that that person is, you know, a Satan worshiper. Okay, I could totally agree with that. I was like, that's more what I was getting at. Where uh, again, we don't, and again, we talked, you talked about this earlier, is that we've stepped away from the spiritual side of things. So we sit there and we don't recognize those types of things we don't sit there and say wow that person is really filled with the spirit and we don't sit there and say that person is really filled with the devil right um kind of thing um but that being said is we do have those um how our culture works is we do have it to where we recognize that there are people that are that become outcasts um they're outside of the tribe outside of the tribe and we gotta blame them of, for whatever's going on Yes, and we blame them for whatever is. is so, if going you on like now. this this discussion that we're having, and it scratches a niche, I would uh, advise you to read a book called Scapegoat by Rene Girard. He's a French intellectual from the nineteenth twentieth century. He died early two thousands. He has a book. He's a Christian. He wrote a book on scapegoat, and he details throughout human history this idea. Literally, Colton didn't even know we're talking about it, but. He details this whole archetype of how society is framed around scapegoating minorities. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of 99% of the time it's used for religious purposes. I would agree with you now that we're now post, not even Judeo-Christian, but we're just post-religion in, in the world. We've now reached this like secular humanist. We, we still have scapegoats that are just not built around religious purviews. As uh, Rene Girard lays out, but I would definitely—it's not a long book, but it is. If you, once you read it, it completely exposes the world. And you're like, oh, now I know how the world works. It—the world completely operates in this way. And again, he kind of lays it out in the book, but I, I pull the thread even further. That's how this whole discussion, whether you think it's literal or figurative, works in the Old Testament, where you were where satan a satan is mentioned it is a scapegoat it's a scapegoat 
Israel's being persecuted or Israel's being uh, uh, exiled because this Satan comes around. It's like, no, you're blaming Babylon or Persia coming in and taking you over because you're not living up to what God intends and right. living as a light to the world. And that's where we get the conversation where I've talked about before where hell, this idea of hell, uh, which again, everybody believes that Satan is this uh, this ruler over, is again, this idea of hell is a place where you have put yourself, where you have decided to live your life outside of the will that God has placed for you. And so Babylon is this hell, so to speak, of... God protected you, but you decided to turn away from what God had planned for you. And so therefore God says, okay, then like if you choose not to be a part of me, then you don't get any of my protection and any of anything coming for you. And so therefore the Israelites suffer through that process. Um, and you may sit there and think, well, what about, you know, um, in Egypt and all that kind of stuff, um, which are, are good conversations to have. But again, these are how people explained what was going on in the Old Testament. Um, <laughs> well, let's deal with Bible. Egypt real quick. Let's just deal with Egypt real quick. Joseph, uh, look, yes, there was a Broadway play and then a movie done over Joseph and his magic, his wonderful techni technicolor dream coat. Dream coat. Let's be really honest. If you read the Old Testament, Joseph is Joseph is the hero of the story, and his brothers are, I would say, still understandably when I'm finished telling this, but they're they're the villains. Look, if you actually read it, Joseph is a insufferable, arrogant asshole of a brother who runs around telling everyone he's great. Everyone sucks balls, and they're meaningless. But also, you shouldn't kill that person. I totally I understand that. I'm not. I'm not taking a literal view of the story. My yeah, point yeah, I is, got you. the point, the reason why I said let's bring that up is well, another thing that I don't think we talk about in a modern Christian sense is there. Look, whether we like it or not. Well, we don't talk about it, but we look around it. We see it all the time. I mean, it goes back to the suicide discussion we're talking about. Generational sin is a problem. Yeah, but here's also – well, but here's something that needs to be said about the Joseph story and what always here's. continues to be a, a theme for the Bible is that God can take a really crappy situation and turn it into something that is good for him and for his people. And so, for example, when you look at the Joseph story is that Joseph has these dreams and he has this really shitty situation come upon him. And he has this whole redemptive process to which he is able to save his family from the famine of the world that they were living in and take them over to Egypt because of his status that he had in the Egyptian empire um, and bring them over and have that. And so, like, if we want to go even further down the line, and we've talked about Babylon tonight, where we talk about Babylon, um, again, the enslavement and the relinquishing of power that God said, okay, well, 
I'll turn you over to yourselves and I'll let your enemies come after you because again, that is the harshest punishment that God can bestow is to be completely uninvolved in what's going on with you. There's still good that came from Babylon was the fact that they were again able to write down their history. We wouldn't have the Hebrew Bible is what yeah. we've talked yeah, about yeah. today if it wasn't for the fact that they went to Babylon and, and Nebuchadnezzar was adamant about learning their culture and having it written down and recorded um, to which it wouldn't have been what it was to this day. Um, and so that's extremely important in their storyline um, where God continues to use these terrible situations to invoke healing um, on his people, which is everyone across the world. So I don't know. Uh, so I would say, I, look, that's a great point. And I would say that's always, if look, there's two ways to view the world as a Christian. Once sin has been had, I think Christians have to then look to the hope and the redemptive side of it. But I think the story of Joseph and him being, and frankly, a precocious asshole as a kid, that if we take the story literally or figuratively where his brother's like, fuck this guy, we're going to sell him to slavery. Or you even take the story of Abraham or Abram and Sarai, who then becomes Sarah, where they're told they're going to have a kid and neither one of them take God seriously. And, and both of them are like, well... You need to sleep with your handmaiden and have a baby from them. And God says, well, that's great. And I'm going to bless them because he's still the firstborn. Right. But I'm also going to tell you because of how humanity, frankly, works. We look at that and we feel like, well, God's... It's funny. We look at both non-Christians and Christians look at the Isaac and Ishmael story and be like, well, God's cursing him. Like, no, God's just actually laying out how humanity works. Right. Which is firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn bullshit. Yeah. And so he's like, I'm just telling you, you've had the baby. I'm going to create a covenant that I had not created with that baby before. But I'm going to, because you did what you did, I'm still going to be a bigger man and create a covenant. But I'm just telling you, the offspring of the firstborn and the secondborn even though my primary covenant is with the second, and again, whether we're taking this story literally or figuratively, to me, doesn't matter. They are going to then forever be in conflict. Right. And Ishmael is the, the, the heirs of Ishmael are the Arabs, and the heir, the heir of, Israel, of, of Isaac are the Jews. And what do we see today? We see that conflict. And so... I'm sorry. The other story is to, as Christians, is we should we should try to live as perfect a life as we can, so we don't create generational sin problems within our own families, ecosystems, whatever. And yes, if we create those, to your point, God is still there. Jesus is there, still there to meet redemption. But yeah. how much pain are we creating? amongst our offspring and our offspring offspring before we get to that point because that's just how the world works it's yeah. just a broken world and redemption is always out there but always. we have to avoid these generational sin moments where we say like oh i hear what you're telling me but i don't really believe you so or it's not on my time frame so i'm just going to do this it's like if you just 
remained a little patient and believed me. Yeah. And we create these problems because we have to have it when we want to have it. Uh, I say we call it there. I think we do. Yeah. So. Uh, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Go to Hell podcast. Uh, strong opinions, weekly held. Uh, email us at Tim at Go to Hell podcast.com, Colton at Go to Hell podcast.com. Hit us up at our Substack at Go to Hell podcast.substack.com, Twitter at Go to Hell podcast.com, or I think it's Instagram, it's Go to Hell pod. And Colton, if you don't like this non alcoholic beer, then you can go to hell. It's bad. <laughs>